Ni hao. Hi, my name is Kylie Jones, and I'm a senior international studies major at Pepperdine University. Welcome to Global Tides, a podcast where I interview Pepperdine faculty and students who have produced excellent social science research with an international component. In an increasingly interconnected world, Global Tides seeks to illuminate the importance of cross-cultural studies for dismantling stereotypes, encouraging empathy, and reaching peace. This is episode four. Today, ethnic conflict remains a major challenge to international peace and security. Many regions of the world, from South Asia to Sub-Saharan Africa, to Eastern Europe are all grappling with ethnic conflict. Thus, studies on both ethnic conflict and ethnic peacebuilding have received particular attention from scholars. So, what is ethnic conflict and why has it persisted? How can an intersectional approach to peacebuilding contribute to sustainable peace in these areas experiencing ethnic conflict? In this episode, I speak with Dr. Carrie Riddle an assistant professor of political science at Pepperdine University, and William Bacon, a senior political science honors student, as they explore these themes of ethnic conflict and ethnic peacebuilding in their research projects. Welcome, y'all. Thank Thank you. you. So first, before we start to dig into your research a little bit, can you each tell me a little bit about your background, um, your research interests, and your involvement at Pepperdine? So I am, my name is William Bacon. I'm an undergraduate student at Pepperdine and I'm a political science major. And originally I just wanted to graduate early. So I'm graduating two years early, but Dr. Newman kind of pressed me to apply for the honors program, which I did. And the first week, I think we had, he wanted us to write a research question. And throughout all my political science classes I've taken Pepperdine, there's always been a question about ethnicity. And that's something I've like always had an interest in. And I find so interesting. So yeah, that's kind of the basis of what I wanted to do originally. And yeah. Awesome. Nice to meet you, William. (laughs) And Dr. Riddle. Yeah, so this is my first year at Pepperdine. I was actually teaching at Calvin University for the previous three years of my career. Um, And I graduated from Notre Dame with a PhD in peace studies and political science. And I have strong interests in peacebuilding practices, um, and especially the the kinds of things that women get up to for peacebuilding, because they're often sidelined from the formal processes. But I think women and their experiences with violence um, and their creative ideas for pursuing peace in their societies have have a lot to offer um, that is often sort of overlooked because they're not those formal actors that political scientists usually pay attention to. Um, so I'm really interested in using gender analysis in conjunction with a lot of the big questions that tend to get asked within peace and conflict studies. So those are my main areas of interest. Awesome. And that's very important work. So I appreciate the research that you're doing. So, William, you begin your paper with a reference to Samuel Huntington's famous, albeit controversial work, The Clash of Civilizations. Can you talk a little bit about how Huntington's piece influenced your work, and what was your sort of first reaction to reading this piece of literature? Yeah, so Huntington's piece gets, he has this kind of grim outlook on the future, the post-Cold War history, and he basically says that all future wars will be determined by inner civilization or intercultural battle and conflict and violence, and so he basically splits the world up into different 
sections. So you have like Western civilization, you have Hindu civilization, Islamic civilization, African civilization. And he basically just says that all wars will be fought between these civilizations that they will be constantly opposing each other. After digging more and even after completing my research, I found that this is just simply not the case and this is just too negative of an outlook to have. And it's just fundamentally wrong. Yeah, those are really awesome takeaways. And it kind of gets at some of the findings that you had at the end of your research. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get there, can you go a little bit into detail about ethnic conflict? What is ethnic conflict? How is it generally defined? And what does that look like in the world? Yeah, so when I first started, I, you know, we were supposed to read 20 pieces of literature. And everywhere I look, it just said ethnic conflict. Like every single literature said ethnic conflict. So I would look up Singapore, ethnic conflict in Singapore, or I'll look up India, ethnic conflict in India, or like Israel, ethnic conflict in Israel. And there was never really a definition applied to that. So I would just carry that term throughout my entire research in the fall. And I just assumed that ethnic conflict would be the violence between two ethnicities. So that would include complex emergency, which is usually defined as mass exodus of a people, so like partition or genocide. And then I take South Asian politics to Dr. Riddle, who's also my uh, mentor, <laughs> faculty advisor for the uh, honors program, and I, um, we define or make a, distinct, um, a distinction between ethnic conflict and ethnic violence as outlined by Ashutosh Varshini, and we see that ethnic conflict can actually be positive. It shows that institutions are working and that ethnicities are interacting with each other, so that's kind of been a point I research where I have to, you know, still work on. I have to make that distinction, and so when I talk about ethnic conflict, I'm just kind of following the bandwagon of the literature. So ethnic conflict means ethnic violence. But I will make that distinction later on that ethnic violence is actually the, yeah, like the violence between two ethnicities. So that, that would involve mass riots, death, and instability. So through your research, you explore the relationship between four variables, HDI, Gini coefficients, ethnic fractionalization, and regime type on ethnic conflict. Can you explain your findings? Was there a particularly strong relationship that you found between any of these factors and ethnic conflict? I was really hoping that I would find some sort of correlation between every single graph, but I did not. So we start off with Gini, and I also had um, level of democracy. So there's a scale of how democratic or authoritarian a nation is. I had that plotted as well. And overall, there's no strong correlation. But what I, was, what I was most looking at was the ethnic rationalization versus political stability. But it turned out it was just a flat, just a flat line. And so like the, the most, what I consider the most important bivariate relationship turned out to be, that turned out to show no correlation. And so it kind of just proves this notion that, okay, well, if you have a more diverse society, if you have more ethnicities in a given state, it's bound to be more politically instable. And the graph did not show that. What I am more so honing in on now is HDI versus political stability. I'll just jump in very briefly to Please add <laughs> my, my understanding of HDI is it's a composite index of measures of individual health and education and income. Um, so those are the three things that go into it. And part of the point of the human development index is to say we should be caring about what an individual's quality of life is like, much more so than we care about how an entire economy is developing. Um, so those are what human development theorists were trying to do when they developed that index. And that showed a relatively strong correlation. It had a R-squared value of 0.505. And that's not strong, but it's definitely there. It's definitely considered a correlation of some sort. So that's what I've been focusing a lot on. Um, You kind of mentioned in your answer that you found 
zero to no correlation between um, Gini coefficients, ethnic fractionalization, and regime type um, with ethnic conflict. Um, so can you kind of speak to what does that mean? How does that challenge the literature that kind of hints that these may be contributing factors to ethnic conflict? What are kind of your takeaways by um, from that finding? Obviously, in recent history, or like in recent literature, it's been kind of you know, proven that having two opposing ethnicities doesn't always result in conflict. So more and more that's being widely more accepted. But if you look at literature back in the 90s and 80s, there is this um, like primordialist ideology that just means two ethnicities are bound to fight each other in a given state. And so with regards to the overall literature, if you just look at ethnic fractionalization versus political stability, and you see that there's no correlation there, it kind of hints that it just slightly contributes to the notion that this is not true, what was occurring or what people, what people were thinking in this post-Cold War era. One thing I just did not even think about with regards to avoiding ethnic conflict was a cultural foundation. When, when I was reading a lot of the literature, it talked a lot about human development index, economic uh, development, but um, rarely, I feel like, did anyone really talk about this cultural foundation that has helped to avoid ethnic conflict and I feel like that's just so important. So I read a lot about different customs and, insti and in indigenous institutions that have aided in um, state peace and uh, interethnic peace. And that's something that I was, I was really happy to see and read about. Uh, a lot of what we would see as culturally neutral conflict resolution is actually culturally Western. Um, it comes from sort of Western norms and practices. Um, and then, you know, people from influential Western nations sort of set themselves up as technical experts who get to come in and mediate conflicts all over the world and that kind of thing. And um, surprise, surprise, those often don't stick because the, the kinds of norms and practices associated with that aren't familiar to people in non-Western places. And so Letterac says it's probably going to work a lot better. It's going to resonate better. People are going to understand what happens. They're going to buy in a lot more if you're using something like a local tradition to try to um, create new connections across historically divided communities. And many times these are things that outsiders will not even know about, right? They're not your traditions. Um, and so I think there's a move that the conflict transformation critique of Western conflict resolution has been pretty influential for a while now. And I, I think things are now trending in the direction of instead of having outside experts come in and sort of lead everything, there is still some room for training people in like negotiation skills and mediation skills and that kind of thing. But but don't come in and do the mediation yourself as an outsider, as a Westerner. Instead, train local people in some of those skills. And then there are often some really interesting kind of hybrid forms of resolution or, or mediation that emerge. So it's kind of a combination of um, what we might more traditionally think of as mediation and then really interesting indigenous traditions that are really going to resonate with people on the ground. Um, so I think that's much more ethical and it's going to produce much more sustainable peace. Let's pivot a little bit to Dr. Riddle's research. Um, your research focuses on ethnic peace building, particularly in the region of Manipur, India. Can you explain the need for peace building in this region? And is there a sort of ethnic conflict element to um, what's going on in Manipur? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of different conflicts happening simultaneously in Manipur. It's, it's one of eight states in the northeastern region. 
And that whole region has long been marginalized relative to the rest of India. Um, a lot of observers of the region say it's in sort of a neocolonial relationship with the center. So a lot of the area has been occupied for a long time because there are various um, ethnicity-based insurgent groups that have risen up uh, demanding different things. A lot of them have really different goals. Some of them just want more autonomy. Some of them want more resources from the government. Um, some of them would like to even break off and make a completely independent state with um, territory even from part of neighboring Myanmar. Um, so there are a, a lot of different ethnic insurgencies that have arisen across a lot of these different states in the Northeast. And so um, ethnic peace building is, is very much needed. Some of the conflict is between some of the ethnic groups as they're sort of um, rivaling against each other um, for attention from the government, for resources, for land and those sorts of things. Um, but there's also a need for peace building between the center and the whole periphery region. There's also a need for peace building within the home. Um, so, you know, because I am focusing on women's experiences with violence and peace, Certainly they were talking about the problems associated with military occupation and with the ethnic armed insurgents, um, but they're also worried about domestic violence and peace between husbands and wives and between mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws and those sorts of things. So um, certainly a need for ethnic peace, but for more kinds of peace than only ethnic peace, I would say. Something I found so interesting about your paper is that um, a lot of times studies about ethnic conflict can take a very macro lens and kind of um, not necessarily view the individual and the more micro level analysis. Um, but your research involved many interviews with individual activists and peace builders and scholars and journalists in Manipur. So can you speak a little bit to your experience in India and what it was like to interview these people on the ground? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really uh, amazing and challenging experience. Um, the, the majority of the people that I was working with spoke English, so I did about 70% of the interviews myself in English, um, but I was working with a translator for about 30% of the interviews, and so um, I just kind of arrived and started meeting people, started asking questions. Um, I used a, a method that's common in anthropology that's called snowball sampling, where you rely on the people that you've met to introduce you to more people, and your interviews just kind of grow from there. Um, so there were some initial contacts that I had made while I was in the United States via things like Facebook and LinkedIn and emails and stuff like that. So I would just reach out to people and say, hey, I'm coming. I would love to meet you. Um, and then the conversations just kind of flow from there. So there, there were a couple of people in particular that were really instrumental in introducing me to various networks. Um, there was one peace builder uh, who had worked with a graduate student on a different project, um, doing participatory action research on a peace building initiative, actually. Um, and she was about my age, and we were both staying on the campus of Manipur University, and she ended up being a wonderful translator for me. So we worked pretty closely um, so, yeah, it was just sort of going around, meeting people, learning more and more over time. Um, of course, I had, had a more specific methodology that I had in mind as well, trying to really get diversity across ethnic difference, across geographic difference. Um, so I was based in Imphal, the capital city, which is in the, the central valley of Manipur. But I tried my best to get out to different hill districts around the outskirts as well, um, there were a lot of challenges related to 
mobility and security too, um, because it's it's what you know people in the global north would call relatively underdeveloped in terms of infrastructure. So they're the roads are really rough. Um, it's heavily militarized and occupied, and so there are military checkpoints every time you're going out to hill districts. So there, there was a mix of um, really warm welcome from some people, but um, kind of the hostility of the environment itself. You could just feel the military occupation and the, and the threat of violence in the area as well. Um, but my personal interactions with people were um, almost 100% across the board, very warm and welcoming, and people just immediately trusted me. It was really incredible. Yeah, that's really, really enlightening. Can you recall a time or uh, an interaction that you had that particularly touched you or left a really lasting impact on you? Yeah, I think there was there was one day in particular where I went out to the Chirachandpur district, which is dominated by the Kuki ethnic group. So they're a, a tribal group that live in the hills. And I got to observe a prayer meeting that a lot of the Kuki women were participating in together. And um, they they see themselves as peace building. A, a lot of traditional peace building scholars wouldn't necessarily see their work as peace building because they're not doing formal conversations. They're not doing peace talks between insurgent groups or anything like that. Um, but they are victims of ongoing violence and they band together to pray and sing and dance and try to heal from trauma associated with violence and things like that. Um, so I got to go and observe a prayer meeting and even have these women pray over me and my research. Um, and it was incredibly touching and kind that, I mean, I, I was there to learn about them and to do my best to support them and their experiences with violence and sort of publicize their peace initiatives. And, and there they were praying for me. And so that was just incredibly humbling um, and touching and one of my best memories from my field research for sure. Wow, that's really awesome to hear. Your research puts forth the idea of critical feminist just peace, building off the critical feminist methodology of Brooke Ackerley and the just peace ideas proposed by John Paul Lederach. Can you kind of explain this idea of critical feminist just peace? Yes. So John Paul Lederach is an American Mennonite peace builder, practitioner, scholar, and he has this approach to peace building called conflict transformation. Um, and it really focuses on people who are embedded within the conflict, who are experiencing violence in their everyday lives. They should be the ones that are building the peace <laughs> according to their own experiences, according to local traditions, those kinds of things. And so his, his stated goal for the conflict transformation approach is just peace. And it's, it sort of insists on the simultaneous presence of peace and justice. Um, so those two have to go together. Um, so I took his idea of just peace. I thought it was sort of the best stated goal that peace builders could be shooting for. Um, the best goal that I had read across the peace and conflict studies literature. And, and so I really liked that. But he's also a sociologist and a practitioner. And I do feminist political theory, among other things. And so there were places where I thought his approach could be more gender conscious, could pay more attention to things like gendered power relations, intersectional differences among groups of people. Um, so I ended up taking a lot of the insights of critical feminist theory and, and especially the, the thinker that you mentioned, Brooke Ackerley, and her critical feminist methodology and using that to sort of analyze women's peace building practices that were happening in Manipur, India, and, and using all of that analysis to then reformulate just peace to make it more intersectional and make it more gender conscious. 
So in my paper, which is also hopefully going to be a book manuscript quite soon, um, I have letter X definition of just peace, and then I have a lot of specific examples of things that women in Manipur were trying to do and say, okay, this suggests that we need to change this language of letter X, and this suggests that we need to add this because it's missing from his approach. Um, so I can, I can read the definition for you. Critical feminist just peace is defined as an intersectional orientation towards conflict transformation that reduces structural power hierarchies and direct forms of violence, increases equitable justice outcomes across public and private life, and includes historically marginalized participants. So there are several places in there where Letterock's definition would have been slightly different, and, and I've sort of tweaked it on the basis of the kinds of things that women in Manipur were doing. Can you speak a little bit to why you think it's important to examine issues like ethnic peace building through the lens of a feminist lens or examining gender and these other facets of intersectional um, examination? Right. So I think most most of the common approaches to peace and conflict studies have assumed that they were gender neutral. Um, but in fact, many of them are based on the experiences of men and politics as they've been designed by men and run by men. So you think your approach is universal and is going to capture everybody's experiences, but that's really just not the case. Um, and I think that, you know, John Paul Lederach, he was actually a former professor of mine at the University of Notre Dame, and I love his work. I think he would actually agree with basically every revision that I am suggesting <laughs> to his work. I think he is on Team Feminist. Um, but he wasn't explicitly setting out to be gender conscious. Um, he was he was more interested in the hierarchy between Western experts coming in as outsiders and sort of taking control of peace building um, and really devaluing local knowledge and local traditions and local people. So he's really concerned with that hierarchy. And I think that's really important. But I think we also need to consider gendered hierarchies. So for example, with Lederach's conflict transformation approach, you would have to be looking to local people and local traditions and making sure that you're very much bringing them in to sort of drive peacebuilding processes. You wouldn't necessarily have to go that next step of asking, okay, but who from the local are we talking to? Are they all men? Are they all the elders of this village? And they're all like 65-year-old men, right? Um, and that's definitely just going to miss a lot of the experiences with violence that women have, um, there's a lot of scholarship within feminist theory and, and um, empirical scholarship that focuses on gender that just says because of the way that men and women are socialized differently, they have different social expectations, different roles that they play in the family and in the community. So they're going to have different experiences. And so it's really important to have the representation of women in things like peacebuilding practices, um, or you're just really going to miss many of their experiences with violence and and some of the women that I was speaking to had been direct victims of armed conflicts. I mean, there was a woman that I interviewed who had some like BBs from gunshot in her shoulder where she armed insurgents had come into the church and had shot her in the shoulder. So she was a direct victim of that kind of violence. Um, there were also women whose husbands had been killed. So they themselves had not been harmed, but they had then been thrown into a very difficult life. Other women who referenced the kind of violence that they might face um, at the hands of their mother-in-law in their homes, right? And so if we don't have women involved or even directing a lot of the conversations within a community about what peace means and what peace building and, and what a just society is going to require, 
we're going to miss all of those things. Um, and again, I think Letterock would be very much in favor of examining those dynamics and trying to ensure that all of those kinds of relationships are incorporated in our peace building. But you wouldn't necessarily have to examine those if you're using the gender neutral language associated with his approach. So I'm basically adding in some language and some things to think about, some concerns um, that make sure you have to examine those in order to proceed with critical feminist just peace. Awesome. I think those are really, really important takeaways. You both tackle really big issues in international relations, ethnic conflict and ethnic peace building. Were there any watershed moments as you researched? Um, which findings kind of impacted you the most as you researched and you thought, wow, this is the heart of what I'm researching. This is the most important takeaway that I found. Honestly, the biggest or the most, when I'm, the points of my research where I'm like, wow, this is what I love, this is what I love, this is why I love doing it is when I'm learning about these different countries, especially, and how they are, what they are doing to avoid conflict or violence. I think it's so eye-opening. So um, I'm researching about different countries like Botswana and to learn about their cultural practices and their different tribal practices, which actually have helped them to avoid all forms of ethnic conflict and that being like essential to their society. That's like the fact that I even get to learn about that and you know, put that into my research and, you know, get shed light on topics like that. That's like the most fulfilling for me, like when I when I see stuff like that. So it's just really it's really cool on that end. I think for me, uh, an important realization was um, the difference between equal opportunity and equitable results. I know that that's a that's a relatively common argument that you hear among a lot of different intersectional studies or, or people that are working in DEI kind of spaces, the importance of equity. So I definitely already had those ideas kind of in the back of my mind, but I could see it play out so clearly in multiple examples of what was happening with women's lives in Manipur. So one example was there was a there was a group that was trying to call a, a meeting on um, development work. I think it was a development instead of peace. I see those two as closely related. Um, but there were men who had organized this meeting and they invited all of the women associated with this peace building organization that I was working with to come to the meeting and share their thoughts on development. And that's that's wonderful. I'm excited to see men organizing that and inviting women to it, right? But they called the meeting for, um, I think it was 8 a.m. And if you are a woman in Manipur, you know that at 8 a.m. you are making breakfast and doing dishes and dropping the kids off at school. And that's that's the socially ascribed role to the woman in Manipur, right? There's no way you're going to be able to actually attend a meeting at that time. Um, and that to me was such a stark example of it's equal opportunity. We've invited you. This is open to all. Like, just come and access it and you're going to be able to come and, and pitch in and it's great and we're going to hear your voice. But actually, because of the social expectations for women and, and the demands on their time at that particular time of day, they really weren't able to come at all without um, just a Herculean effort in terms of getting somebody else to come and do all that work for their family or something. So I thought that was one really stark example of the difference between equal opportunity and equitable results. Um, and again, that was something I'd been hearing for a long time, but to see it play out so clearly in this society was really formative for me. Um, and Lederach uses a lot of equal opportunity kind of language in his writing. So that's one of the changes that I make when I'm redefining just peace. Great. Those are both 
really important takeaways, and I, I definitely left with a more expanded um, breadth of knowledge and understanding of both of these issues after reading both of your research. Can you see any future implications from your research? Where do you think policymakers and scholars and activists um, should go from here? Yeah, I think so. I've talked quite a lot about John Paul Lederach's work on conflict transformation so far. So I'll just mention one other contribution that I think I'm making. Um, so within international peace and security, there's this whole global agenda called the Women, Peace and Security Agenda that's trying to make sure that we get gendered concerns into our international peace processes. Um, I think that is hugely important, but it also sort of assumes that the peace building that you're working on is international, is between states, right? Um, it's going through this global institution, which is the United Nations, which many people in many countries aren't so fond of. Um, and it's run through this particular office called UN Women. And they only have so many resources. They can only be so many places. Um, so I think the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda is a wonderful innovation. I think it's really important, but it just doesn't reach every conflict. It doesn't reach every woman in the world who's experiencing violence. And so I am sort of situating my work alongside the women, peace and security agenda and places where that agenda won't necessarily be able to reach, whether that's because the UN lacks legitimacy in a country or in the case of India and the conflict that I'm looking at, the state doesn't even acknowledge that armed conflict is happening. They refer to it as an internal disturbance, and they say we're doing counterinsurgency against homegrown terrorists. And so it's, it's not even a place where they are going to invite in international observers. And so how can we sort of make local um, intra-state peacebuilding that's happening in a lot of places, sort of beyond the reach of something like the WPS agenda? How can we make that more intersectional and gender conscious. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a gap in terms of um, the scope of the WPS agenda, and I'm trying to fill that gap. Lastly, do you have any final takeaways for our listeners at home? Um, I would just encourage, I'm, I'm guessing that this will be a largely American audience that might be listening to this podcast. So I would just encourage American students to, to learn about countries like India to learn from countries in the global south. Um, I think we've heard quite a lot from the United States and Europe when it comes to international politics and, and topics like peace and conflict resolution. And there's a lot of really incredible work happening all around the world. Um, so one of my one of my main goals is to sort of amplify incredible things that are already happening. And, and I would just encourage American students to, to reach out and learn from other places. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast episode was edited by Kylie Jones. A big thank you to Dr. Carrie Riddle and William Bacon for joining me for today's episode. Tune in again next time for a conversation with Savannah Potter, Abraham Kakish, and Madeline Carrera about contemporary issues impacting Latin America and the Caribbean.